All right, everyone, welcome to Trips Tennis Talk, the amateur podcast about professional tennis. Just a little bit ago, um, the Miami Finals were on between Daniil Medvedev and Yannick Sinner, and we'll get to that and a couple of other topics with a Twitter friend of mine, Matt Zemek. Matt Zemek is the editor of the Tennis with an Accent website, and he is somebody that I've followed on Twitter um, almost 10 years now, Matt, and... Um, we're getting old. Yes, we are. We're getting old. And, you know, we're going to, I'm going to, I have a question about, you know, the state of Twitter and stuff, but we'll get to that later because, you know, I don't post on there really anymore, but, you know, I definitely still read everyone that's on there. Anyway, just cutting to a couple of the questions here. And like we were just talking about off the air, I have like maybe a question or two about real sort of tennis nuts and bolts stuff, but I tried to go a little bit different in the direction of the questions today. I should also mention Matt has been on this podcast before. Um, go back and listen to the Canada episode. Um, you know, we're going to have you on twice a year, Matt, it seems like, you know, in this kind of six-month intervals. And um, you did say on that occasion, you know, that we look forward to coming back on the podcast after the U.S. Open. Well, it's after the U.S. Open now, so it might have, you know... We're, we're we're fulfilling that requirement here, Matt. How's it going? It's going well, and uh, thanks for having me back on your show. I I, I am all in on Trip Talks Tennis. <laughs> you know, people do listen, and you know, I'm definitely making it as a friends and family sort of thing right now. But a couple of the episodes they've gotten, you know, more than the number that that would be. So we're not talking about massive viewership or anything here but people do find it and a couple of my friends tell me oh i haven't listened to the podcast podcast yet i'll try and listen to it later so you know people do listen to it which is nice um okay question number one um um about the match today um just if you don't know medvedev wins he's the miami open champion if you're listening um, Sinner looked like he was not feeling well in the match. In the trophy presentation afterwards, he said that he woke up not feeling great. But even not, you know, looking at the larger picture here with Sinner, to me, Matt, it seems like Sinner is in the is in the Thomas Burditch mold right now. Ranked five to eight, gets to the later stages of tournaments, gets to the big matches and never seems to win them. What does Sinner have to do to exceed the Burditch tier? Well, you know, it, it, it is worth noting that, like, he didn't lose in a quarterfinal or semifinal this time, and he did beat Carlos Alcaraz, uh, which is an important step forward. But, you know, with Sinner, it's, pr- it's pretty clear what, uh, you know, he and what Darren Cahill... You know, who's doing a good job uh, needs to do to get him to the next level, and that is beef up that serve, specifically a second serve. You know, get some more kick, get some more weight, make make both of your first and second serves harder uh, to to punish. Um, because you know, when when center, I mean, you know, against Djokovic, you know, Djokovic will expose anyone's service limitations but it also shows up against Alcaraz as well that 
you know, if you can't make your serve an elite weapon, uh, then you're going to get roped into rallies. And, you know, Sinner can certainly hold his own from the back of the court. That's really not the problem. That's really not the issue with Sinner, right? It's, you know, just these matches against Alcaraz and Djokovic and other top players. And Medvedev. First off, they become so, and Medvedev, they become so attritional that, you know, Sinner, who's had some health problems, is going to just, you know, his body's going to be ground down and, you know, he still needs to add a little bit of meat to his uh, Italian bones there. Needs a little bit, little extra chicken cacciatore, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to, to muscle up, bulk up. Um, you know, so, you know, he's still a growing boy and uh, need, needs to get even stronger. Like Alcaraz, you can see the physical, muscular development that he's already attained. Like that, that certainly makes a difference for him in general. Sinner is, is behind... Uh, the the curve he's behind the standard that that Alcaraz has set just in terms of being a physical specimen. So the margins are smaller for center, and that's where the serve comes in. You know, the it, with a bigger, more beefed up serve, uh, you know, a little more Italian sausage, so to speak, uh, that he can then get more cheap points, win matches, win games, sets more easily. Uh, and so it's not as much of a physical grind for him. So he preserves his body throughout months, throughout seasons, uh, and, and everything will come together for him. Everything's going to be easier for him when he gets a two sets to one lead over Djokovic <laughs> at a major. He'll have the serve that can close the door. When he gets a lead over Alcaraz at a big U.S. Open match, as we saw in, in New York last September, he'll be able to close the sale. So, so much of it comes down to the serve. And you know, just for perspective on this trip, you know, let's remember that uh, Novak Djokovic, you know, he's had three different acts in his career or three different, you know, periods of uh, dominance and, and ultimate success. The third act, the third great period of Djokovic's career began with the 2018 Wimbledon semifinal against Rafael Nadal. You know, he, Djokovic had the 2011 rise, then he had the 2014-2015 resurgence and that brilliant 2015 season, then carrying into 2016 as well. Um, and then the third act, after his injuries in 2017, the third act began with Wimbledon in 2018, and that was, that marked really, the you know, the late stage Djokovic, his arrival and realizing that his serve had to just be an elite weapon in order for him to stay on top of the sport. And Djokovic just became uh, by far the best spot server in the sport. And any clutch situation, like he would just hit the corners of the box. You could just mark it down. Uh, you know, Djokovic basically took the baton <clears throat> from Roger Federer as the clutchest, uh, best spot server in big situations on tour so like the serve the serve did not mark Djokovic's initial rise in 2011 or his dominance in 2015 he was just so good from the back of the court no one had an escape plan no one had anywhere to go against him but the the third act you know 2018 to today you know it's still going on five years later that's that empire, that 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 foundation of the Djokovic empire in his later years, and which is what's going to sustain his career until he hangs it up, 
has been the serve. And so like that should be instructive for center and really a lot of other players on tour that you just have to get so much mileage out of that. And if you're not, you're really, you know, at a disadvantage in those small margin, big stage moments against other elite players. You know, we, we all hope that Sinner and Alcaraz, you know, after what we saw at the U.S. Open in New York, we all hope that's going to be the next big tentpole rivalry on the ATP Tour over the next 10 years. Like that's It, the it rivalry feels like it now, for sure. I mean, Already. it's certainly getting there. It's certainly getting there. But, like, you know, if, we, if we're going to see 10 more years of Alcaraz center, Yannick, we know where Yannick needs to improve. I mean, and not that Alcaraz doesn't need to improve his serve. He does. But it's so much more important for center because he's not as physically complete as Alcaraz, and he doesn't have as much of a, a, a an assortment of shots as Alcaraz does. You know, Alcaraz with the drop shot, Alcaraz being able to pry open angles at diagonal angles and other angles kind of in a way that's reminiscent of Federer. Uh, Sinner doesn't have that. He's more of the north-south, more one-dimensional uh, hitter. Like, very good, but, you know, Alcaraz does have more tools in the toolbox, so Sinner needs to shrink that gap with the serve. Uh, that That is obviously the thing number one for him and Darren Cahill. I would probably agree with that. Just to look at the numbers from today, it says here for center, first serve percent, 56, first serve one, 69, second serve one, 32%. You know, that that's not great. Um, he, he'll definitely want to do better there. And again, you know, it, it, he, he wasn't feeling well today, but in general, that's probably an area where he should improve, as you say. Um, second question, uh, you know, every single tennis media thing in the world is going to have the lines about Medvedev's a hard court specialist. Now he's going into his, the weak part of the year. Eh, I don't really want to ask that. So different kind of question. They showed him during the match. How much is Jill Savara responsible for Medvedev's performance? Do we think? Cause they've. Worked in France for many years, I think close to his whole tennis life, maybe. Um, how? What do we think is the significance of that relationship between the two of them? Well, I think the, the significance of the relationship uh, shows most profoundly in the simple reality that, you know, unlike 2022, and this is the main story about Medvedev, Winning Miami and you know making the final uh, in both of the installments of the Sunshine Swing, and really having a big run you know ever since Australia ended. Um, just the fact that Medvedev has come back very strongly, that instead of wilting, which he did in 2022, you know his loss to Rafa in the Australian Open final, which he sh- you know he should have been able to close the door, he didn't, and it got to him. And you know he's a human being like the rest of us, and. You know, a stinging career disappointment. You feel you should have won a second major title. You let it slip away. Like, that lingered with uh, Club Med in 2022. The fact that he's come back so well over the past two months since Melbourne, uh, that shows that, you know, he has strong relationships uh, with, with his coach, with his inner circle, that, you know, there's obviously something very substantive there. Uh, he obviously was able to hold it together 
and not allow uh, an Australian Open disappointment to have, to negatively affect him this time. So that what does that say? It's it says that you know the work that he did in the off season and the mental training that's part of any elite athlete's life. Like he obviously learned a few things, and that definitely goes to coaching. It definitely goes to your support staff and to your team. I mean, obviously, the athlete, especially in a solo athlete sport such as tennis, it's up to the athlete to walk over the hot coals of pressure. So, like, Club Med himself gets a lot of credit for that. But when you respond like this to adversity, as he did after the Australian Open, it certainly reflects well on your coaching and your, and your team. Um, absolutely. And I think it'll be interesting to watch how long that partnership goes. If you think to the Djokovic uh, partnership with Marion Vida, they had a similar sort of relationship, I think. They came up together and they achieved uh, success in the professionals uh, on the professional tour together. And then Vida left and then came back and then left again. So I think it'll be interesting to watch how long Medvedev sticks with Savara. Is it going to be a lifetime thing? Is it going to be not? And if you think to the great partnerships in history, Tony Nadal, um, um, you know, like Richard Williams, they were not there at the end. The player switched it up. So I think that'll be interesting to look over the next couple of years with Medvedev. Anything else you want to say about Medi? Not too much because, uh, you know, we are going into clay season and, and you know, it, it, like he hasn't shown in previous clay seasons and grass seasons that he can rise to the very top. And it's really just a wait and see situation like, you know, hey, can, can you be good on other surfaces? And let's just see it like there's just not much point in speculating about it. It's just a matter of, you know, can you do it? Because uh, right now, I mean, and hey. Like, Naomi Osaka, four major championships. Like, you know, and obviously she's dealing with motherhood right now, and, and, and congratulations to her on uh, on that and, and where that uh, leads her uh, on her life journey. But, like, let's let's say, just for the sake of argument, Trip, that uh, Naomi Osaka never becomes a really significant factor. And I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying let's put that out there as a hypothetical. If she never does anything huge again in tennis, she will still walk away with four major championships. Clearly, you know, a, a member of the International Tennis uh, Hall of Fame. That's a great career. That is an absolutely great career. And so, you know, if Daniil Medvedev never amounts to a hill of beans on, on uh, clay or grass, and he has these piles of championships on hard courts, uh, I would say, like, you do need a an Australian Open and you do need a at least a second major on hard courts to really kind of cement yourself as, you know, one of the really top uh, hard court players of his generation. Um, but, you know, still, to be able to do that, everything that he's done on hard courts, kind of like a male Osaka, just on a smaller scale without as many majors, you know, it's it's a heck of a run and it's a heck of a feat. And, and, and I would just reiterate that, you know, after taking all the punches and enduring all the career disappointments uh, in Australia the past few years and, and not being able to to get a second uh, uh, U.S. Open, um, it, it, at least not yet, you know, he could have he could have wilted. 
and he could have allowed you know his uh, downward trajectory in 2022 uh, to really to to continue to negatively affect him. Good for him. Good for him for bouncing back because I don't think anyone you know just expected him to roar through the Sunshine Series and make the finals uh, in both uh, the Southern California Desert and in uh, Miami Gardens. So he showed a lot of fortitude, and he certainly deserves all the good things that are coming his way on hard courts as a result of his prowess on that surface. Hey, it's like it's like Pete Sampras, right? He never did that well on clay, and look at where he ended up. Not that I'm saying that, you know, Medi is going to go that now, he, far. He also did kind of well on grass. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, that's just a good a point. a bit of a difference yeah, there. That's a good point. Um, um, a couple quick ones, Matt, then we'll get to some longer ones again. Petra Kvitova won the women's tournament here in Miami. Two majors, nine Masters titles, WTA finals title. Petra Kvitova, Hall of Fame? Without question. Yep. Um, I think, and you know, I, I, I sort of said it on the episode that I did yesterday. Um, you know, Part of the Kvitova story to me is the courage after the stabbing. And on one hand, I, I feel like bringing it up after every time she wins a big title, you know, I, I, I do think it is legitimate because it, it was a big thing that happened. And she's persisted emotionally after that. And her game has not always been the most easy to control. And the fact that she's won... You know all these one thousand tournaments since that since it happened. You know she was able to marshal her game and she was able to marshal her emotions. I think that's very impressive. It certainly is, and I I don't think it's uh, overkill or you know overdoing it to uh, to keep referring to the knife attack uh, when she wins a big tournament because. It really is that remarkable. I mean, I, I think none of us should take it for granted. Oh, there was a knife attack, and it was several years ago, but, you know, now back to life and, you know, business as usual. No, no. Like, that that should not be assumed as, like, well, of course this happened. Well, of course she's just back to playing tennis. Like, her, her, her hand, you know, was, you know, injured to the point where, you know, she wondered if she could be able to function in terms of holding a tennis racket uh, you, you know the way one needs to like hey I'm like you and I as as hackers on a on a you know a <laughs> court on a, on a Sunday afternoon like if when you hold that racket for a few hours like you know it it rubs your hand raw yep uh, and so Kvitova got attacked you know her hand was significantly hurt like there was a real question about whether she'd ever be able to really be able to play tennis and handle a racket again and and that is completely removed from just the emotional trauma and everything that went into that so yeah really you hit on it and and I and expressed it really well trip that seeing her this emotionally whole and at peace uh and within herself comfortable enjoying life enjoying tennis cuz boy you really had to enjoy tennis to want to you know get right back at it uh, after that attack, uh, that it's phenomenal. It, it really is. It's not just oh, it's a nice story. No, it is amazing. It is spectacular. 
it is extraordinary to see Kvitova this whole, this composed, uh, you know, this this comfortable. And it's such a it is such a fa- fantastic story. And in terms of you know her achievement in Miami, like she went up against the hottest player on the WTA tour, Elena Rabakina, you know, someone who has made all three of the significant finals on tour through the first uh, third of the year. You know, Australian Open final, lost to Sabalenka, got revenge on Sabalenka uh, at Indian Wells, and then made it all the way back to the Miami final. So make so like Medvedev making the final of both installments of the Sunshine Swing. Uh, so Ravakina was the informed player, uh, the player who just was refusing to lose, like, you know, was down a break in the first set to Mertens, uh, was able to fight back, was down a break in the first set to Pagula, you know, fought back from that, and earlier in the tournament was down, uh, you know, was in big, big trouble against Paula Badosa, got out of uh, that spot, so, you know, Rabakino was the informed player, was the elite competitor in Miami. And what does Kvitova do? She wins a 30-point a tiebreaker against her? A absolutely sensational achievement. Like, and, you know, no one was talking about Petra as, like, a frontline contender for Miami. She was a number 15 seed. And you had the reality of, you know, both Sabalenka and Rabakina, you know, really establishing themselves at the top of the sport alongside an injured Iga Sviantek, you know, who didn't play Miami. Um, you know, so like Kvitova came to Miami along with the rest of the WTA realizing, oh, it's not just the Iga show anymore. It's now Iga, uh, Rabakina, and uh, Sabalenka. Really, a, 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 you know, a trio now of superstars at the top of the WTA. And so Kvitova is able to just muscle in and beat Rabakina at the top of her game in a final with a 30-point tiebreaker in the first set? I mean, I, I don't know about the rest of the tennis community, but, uh, like, this is, in my mind, this is not just a really good achievement. It's not even a great achievement. It's a spectacular feat for Petra Kvitova. Well said, Matt. Um, let's let's shift gears now. Let's talk about the some tournament scheduling stuff. And not day to day, but like big picture. Twelve day Masters events, Matt. Is this a good idea? Um, you know, because uh, more the, of them the, are coming. The actual, the actual reality of a twelve day tournament in which players get days off. Um, between matches, like just in microcosm, I like that. And I like, you know, 96 player, uh, masters tournament fields, you know, with more rounds and that's, that's more players getting a first round masters, you know, 1000 point paycheck so that you, you are creating more economic opportunity. So in microcosm, all of that is really good. The problem arises is that when you have one event taking up two weeks on the calendar, well, that's going to squeeze uh, other events, and it's going it's to make other tournaments, uh, you know, it's, it's, it makes it harder for other tournaments to have a foothold uh, on tour. One of the things that I have personally felt, Trip, uh, and I know that, you know, you and I have talked about tennis scheduling for a long time, 
But one of the things I, I think needs to become more a part of tennis scheduling is, you know, to, to, to start tournaments um, on a weekend. You know, it, it only makes sense, right, that if you have the largest amount of matches, you know, a round of 64, a round of 32, you should be having those matches on weekends when the general public has the best chance of seeing it, you know, if the like on Saturday, on Friday, on Sunday, you know, weekend days when you have parents with kids, uh, that's when you should be able to have like a grounds pass and go, just go take in five, eight, ten hours of tennis. Like if you're going to make a day of it, that's when the rounds of sixty-two and rounds of or rounds of thirty-two, rounds of sixty-four should be held to have like a round of sixty-four. On a Monday, well, you know, kids aren't going to be able to see that. Families aren't going to be able to see that. It's just going to be for senior citizens, you know, or, uh, you know, other, you know. Or people that don't work in the summer like me. Independently wealthy people or, yeah, or teachers. Yes. So, you know, doing that on a Monday or a Tuesday for your highest volume uh, sessions with the most matches it has never made sense to me that like all that should be Friday through sun uh, through Sunday, and then you play your championship match on a Wednesday night. You know where if if you have diehards wanting to come out to see one match, that's an interesting theory. Uh, in, in the evening, you know that that's that's like to me the economics of tennis tournaments, the amounts, the amount of tickets that you sell, uh, the amount of matches which can be seen by the public and by younger people, yeah. you know, that we should be getting into uh, having the, the the largest volume days of a tournament on the weekend and you play your championship matches in the middle of the week. The, w- and my the WTA thought, my larger did that. Thought process, just let me, well, yeah. I'll just want to complete this thought. My larger thought process has been that tournaments should operate in kind of uh, two tournament clusters such that one weekend you start on a, one well yeah one week you start a tournament on a weekend uh you know like on a you know a Thursday or a Friday maybe like Thursday you play a few extra round of 64 matches but you play most of your 64s and 32s Friday Saturday and you play like a round of 16 maybe uh on on Sunday and then you work toward a, a final on Wednesday and then you know, with a final on Wednesday, then you go to your next tour stop and you do it again, uh, you know, round of 64, round of 32, Friday, Saturday, you know, 16s and 8s, you know, quarters on Sunday, Monday. And then you play a final in the middle of the week and then you take a week off. Like you can't keep replicating that that format, you know, w- without any interruption. But if tournaments operated in kind of like a two a two event cluster, you know, where like, so in other words, the athletes on the two tours, like they would be expected to go at it pretty hard in a two week, uh, sequence, but then you get a full week off. Like there are no significant tournaments that next week, maybe a two fifty, but certainly not a 500. Um, there, there are ways in my mind to reimagine how we schedule, uh, tennis. Yeah, that's a real interesting theory. The WTA did that for Guadalajara like a year or two ago. 
I, maybe as an experiment, but you know they haven't done it you know since. Um, and the thing that comes to mind when you're talking about matches that can't be seen, like the 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 U.S. Open quarterfinal matches that happen in the day, like those are really hard to watch. You know what I mean? Yep. And those are matches that deserve to be seen more. All right, we're getting we we got about eight minutes left on our Zoom here, so let's let's move on here. Um, what's the what about the identity of Miami? Like in 2010, I would say it was clearly the better of the two, Indian Wells and Miami. I would say Miami was clearly better. Today, Indian Wells has pulled away as the number one in that race, and you know when you compare it to the other tournaments, Miami has fallen behind. And when you compare it to itself, it had to be rescued because it was failing financially. It had to move locations, and now they play it in the parking lot of a football stadium. What do we think of the prestige level of Miami in 2023? Well, I think Miami is always going to be in a in a difficult situation because you know half of the tour, or at least a good chunk of the tour, is thinking about clay uh, and the and the turn from you know the long hard court season uh, to you know the very precious play season you know as you know trip that you know the the vast preponderance of tour matches in in modern tennis are played on hard courts and this really gets to a discussion of you know should we be subjecting these athletes to so much hardcore tennis why don't we have a more balanced uh year in terms of surfaces like you know i i definitely think that we should have a 1000 point grass tournament like you have nine nine of these 1000 pointers and you can't fit one in on grass, like that's just dumb. Beyond beyond being like imbalanced and I think unfair to you know players who are talented on grass, it's also just dumb. Like you should just be having more balance. Like you have like I can see at least theoretically, you know, the idea that uh you know if you have some hardcore tournaments that are outdoor and some that are indoor and that the playing conditions you know are different on based on outdoor indoor you can say that that represents a measure of balance. Okay, fine. But if you're really that into balance, you have to have a grass 1,000-point uh, tournament. Um, but beyond that, like Miami, just just be, because of its in-between place uh, on tour, you know, relative to the clay and hardcore seasons, when, when they switched from Crandon Park, the old facility in Key Biscayne, to the new... A facility at, at Miami Gardens near Hard Rock Stadium, you know, the home of the Dolphins uh, in the NFL. Um, it just seems so obvious. Okay, this should be the time to move to green clay, to move to hard, true green clay. You know, they use that for the WT event in Charleston that we're about to have. You know, players that go to Miami um, for the hardcore event, some of them stick around in the southeastern United States and play that event in Charleston. You know, that Martina and Chris played uh, that that Charleston event uh, plenty of times in the 80s, and it was nationally televised on NBC. You know, it's kind of a big deal. So I don't get it, Trip. Like, Miami should have gone to green clay uh, when it had the chance. And, you know, green clay doesn't play the same as red clay. Like what a great, what a perfect chance to just provide something different 
uh, provide balance, provide a different experience for for players on tour, and to give uh, you know your many Argentine uh, and and Chilean and other you know Latin American fans in Miami, why not give them some clay court tennis that they'll be even more excited about because you'll have more Latin American players. Uh, you know, investing in Miami, taking time to play Miami uh, compared to, to it being a, a hard court. I just do not understand why Miami did not go to green clay when it moved from Key Biscayne to Miami Gardens. Sorry. Yeah, maybe an opportunity missed there for sure. Um, let's Let's go ahead and do this now. All right, Matt, promo stuff. Let me hear it. What What are you working on? What can we do to support you? Well, the big thing at Tennis with an Accent, you know, we did not cover the Sunshine Swing heavily, but I, I reiterate that, you know, now we have Djokovic entering the, the, the fray uh, in the clay season, and, uh, you know, the, the Wimbledon is presumably, uh, you know, going to lift the ban on, on Russians and Belarusians. Uh, for for its tournament now we don't know trip we don't know just how much these uh you know neutrality declarations are going to mean just how much teeth they're going to have and how onerous uh, a process this is going to be for players uh some people are saying like this is going to be very restrictive and 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 so russians are not going to sign these neutrality agreements maybe that's the case maybe that's the case um I guess we just have to wait and see. Uh, I'm not going to make finite, uh, you know, far-reaching uh, pronouncements here uh, on all of this. But but if we assume that, like, you know, this is not going to be too over too suffocating, and that you know, it's just signing a piece of paper and abiding by a few core requirements, you know, thank goodness uh, we won't have a second straight year with a ban on uh, players from Russia or Belarus. Um, so so in other words. We might be finally free from the pandemic in the sense that trip, everyone's going to be playing every event. You know, Djokovic is going to be able to play the U.S. Open, um, so everyone's going to be allowed to play Wimbledon, and everyone's going to be allowed to play uh, on clay in Europe. So thank goodness, like it finally feels as though we'll be returning to a complete tour. And really, we haven't covered a whole lot at tennis with an accent while existing in this, you know, half a tour, you know, half a loaf uh, type situation. But we're ready to cover clay. And so to start us off, Trip, and for all the people who are listening to uh, Trip Talks Tennis, I um, want to say that uh, my partner, Saqib Ali, he is traveling to Portugal for the Estoril Open. Oh, wow. And he's going to be joined, and he's going to be joined by our in-house analyst, Skip Schwartzman, who many people right remember from – Peter Bodo's uh, tennis world, part of the community that I was a part of as well. So Sakib and Skip, they're, they're, they're going to have a, some fun in Portugal, but they're also going to be getting some interviews, some special inside uh, looks at this tournament. And so really excited for that. So you'll want to follow Sakib Ali on Twitter, S-A-Q-I-B-A, uh, and also Skip Schwartzman, Tennis Skip. 1515 uh, for their coverage of the Estoril Open in Portugal. So you want to follow those guys for all the great things 
they're going to be doing. All right, and I think we're about to be kicked off here, so I'm going to do the outro right here. Um, Matt, thank you very much. Matt Zemek, editor of Tennis with an Accent. Go check out all his work. It is very good stuff. I've followed it for nine or ten years now. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Trip. All right. Um, and uh, okay. And it cut off at ex- at exactly that moment. Perfect. All right. So again, I want to thank Matt Zemek for coming back on the pod. Go check out his stuff, please. And that's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to the end. Thanks for listening to Trips Tennis Talk, the amateur podcast about professional tennis. We'll catch you guys next time. Clay season's here.